0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School,
1: this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where my three favorite topics, statistics, business and sports collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. I'm joined today for Q1 by my co-host, professor of statistics, Adi Weiner. Some combination of the two of us, Cade Massey and Shane Jensen, are here every week on the podcast edition of Wharton Moneyball. we get to talk about all kinds of interesting things. Uh, for the last 28 or 30 months or so, we've been talking about COVID and Q1, which we'll talk for a little bit about that. And then, of course, we talk about the application of statistics and data science to problems in sports. And you can listen to us here on SiriusXM 132 and, of course, through your podcast, through your favorite channel. Adi, how are you doing today? I'm doing quite well today, Eric. How are you? I'm doing very well. Well, why don't we just start out, you know, where we've been starting out the last, as I said, 28 to 30 months or so, which is what caught your eye in COVID? So I know you had a few topics today, but let's start.
0: Well, there isn't very much because we're kind of in a a holding period in lots of um, aspects. Uh, Deaths are kind of hovering right around the high 200s. We don't see much spiking around. There is a lot of cases out there. Um, oh, wow. anecdotally, we, anecdotally, I, I I'm right now in Israel. Um, and anecdotally, there's certainly a lot of cases. Um, but what everybody is noticing is that this, it, this last BA 12 BA, whatever five they're, they're calling it.
1: Um, yeah, I think it's, I think be, it's BA um, five. Yep.
0: It seems, seems to be at least anecdotally concentrating on those people who, uh, hadn't had COVID before. Um, and, uh, it, it, there was a, a pretty nice study that we talked about in a couple of shows um, some time ago that showed that if you had gotten COVID um, after July 1 um, and you uh, had your shots, the chance of getting a reinfection was about 20 times less than people who had who had. Well, I guess it did not. It's hard to say. Well, let's just say that didn't have both those things. So let me ask you a question. Um, Do you think, let me ask you a question.
1: Let me ask you a question, Adi, because it's related to topics we do Mm -hmm. in marketing and business all the time. I tend to think of what I do for a living is I build mathematical models for things on like distances. (laughs) So do you think, like, if we were to take the data on COVID, that eventually we could construct something akin to like a map? where we could place the different variances on a map, the variants on a map, and that we'd look at the distance between the variants and the probability of getting reinfected or infected from one as a function of the distance from the other? Do you think – I mean, that's essentially what you're talking about, is that the newer variants are maybe closest cousins of the old ones. But if you had alpha or delta, much farther away on the map and therefore much more independent.
0: Well, there certainly are a lot of gene maps being done, and they've got sort of like evolutionary trees of the virus. And I've been I mean, this is certainly not in my area, um, but the, I did read that Omicron seems to be like a quite a different almost almost at the root. If you think of the tree, it's not a branch off of off of Delta or Alpha. It seems just to be a different variant um, Kind of all together, so I'm not sure what to make of that because I guess I'm not a geneticist. Um, but there is a, a, obviously they've they come from the same original value. Maybe it's not alpha, but they don't seem to be um, kind of a break off of, uh, of uh, off of delta or the beta variants. And of course, that was just one one paper that I read. But I will say, so there's a, there isn't much to talk about. I guess with COVID, except for this every you know every day there's new publications that come out. Um, there were a couple this past week that confirm, you know, the observations that I've been making and and, and we've been talking about on our show for some time, that myocarditis and other heart inflammations, uh, pericarditis, uh, they seem to be, have risen. It's very hard to detect what causes that. Um, was it simply cases of COVID or was it the all the doses of the vaccine? They both Do you seem think, to be Adi, I know you, both those been, same problems.
1: Yeah, you've um, been very concerned. About, yeah. Yeah, you've been very concerned about myocarditis for a while, but in the following sense, I have. are there actual groups? I know you showed us, you sent us this study. I, I, don't, I looked at it, but not as carefully as you did. Are there groups for which you legitimately could say the risk of myocarditis is possibly even greater than the risk of COVID, and therefore by getting vaccinated- Absolutely. Okay. So could you tell us a little bit about that? No,
0: no, 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 no. You have to be careful. Be careful. Okay. I, I
1: talked about, okay,
0: so let's be careful. I talked about the booster shot, which is an extra vaccine um, of, of quite uh, dubious ver- uh, um, of, um, efficacy in young people, right? So it certainly seems to be helpful for people our age and older. And even yes. the fourth shot, Israel has a study that suggests that in the elderly, the most elderly, that fourth shot seems to be quite beneficial. But for the youngest in our population, um, there doesn't seem to be any any additional bonus to getting extra extra vaccines, extra vaccine doses. And the additional risk of getting a myocarditis is doesn't, uh, I think, does not outweigh um, the extra benefit that you would get from the vaccine, which is unproven and hard to measure and too small to be of really any note, um, doesn't outweigh the, the the risk of the myocarditis. And it's absolutely observable. I, I was just talking to a, a colleague at Warden who has a friend who's whose son has been in and out of the hospital with myocarditis? The problem of course, is that we don't know what caused it. Was it the case of COVID or was it the vaccines? And we talked about an Israeli study that looked at, used historical controls to figure that out. And um, what they were using is they were tracking the um, EMT um, uh, calls and they noticed that they were correlated not with COVID outbreaks, but with vaccine unrolling. Um, and so that was their claim that it was connected to the, vac- to the vaccinations. A, a, a news study just came out um, using French data. It uses the, the case control method. I think we should spend some time at some point talking about case control. It's like the most popular epidemiological technique going. Basically, what they did is they took about you know fifteen hundred cases of myocarditis in the country, um, and. Then they took what they, and so they called those the cases. And then they found controls, people who didn't have myocarditis. Now, obviously that's a giant group, right? Um, So how do you collect the controls? And then they try to build essentially a logistic regression algorithm that says, let's try to predict what group you're in. And based on characteristics of the people, we won't know whether they're in treatment or control. They try to match them in some way. And they'll see whether or not factors related to say, for example, how long it was since you had your vaccine- um, prior to the case of myocarditis, um, and they had to do some sort of some sort of kind of randomization strategy to create these like like numbers because the controls don't have any myocarditis, so you're gonna have to like assign them a date, right? So it's 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 tricky science, really really tricky science and hard to do right. And and uh, they found, and I'm not even, I don't think I even like the way they did the statistics, but they found a considerable increase in myocarditis in young men um, right after their, their vaccinations. And that of course goes along with what's what we've been seeing all along, even though I'm not a big fan of the way the case control was run. I don't think it's a, a particularly reliable technique.
1: Let's just be also clear to our listeners out there, what Adi's talking about with the case control method, un- unlike a randomized experiment where you randomize people to treatment and control group, and then you observe outcomes and the outcomes can be what they are. Adi's talking about Cases, identifying people with cases, but then finding hopefully matched groups of people that are the controls. But in some sense, the case is the focal group. You've identified those people with cases first, and then you kind of match them. And then this kind of statistical methods of logistic regression, literally trying to predict who's going to be in which group, and then kind of understanding which factors there are is, as you said, Adi, is a really, really important part of science.
0: Yeah, and it's really statistical because basically what you're doing is you're trying to predict whether you are in the case or the control. You don't get to use the Y variable, obviously, whether you are in the case or control. And so you get to look at other factors that surround them. So, if, if for example, it's the VEX, it's the um, it's the getting the, the disease that's, or the severity of the disease that, that causes the myocarditis, we should see much more severe disease in the cases than in the controls. If it's the timing of vaccination, maybe we should see the cases kind of hovering right around the controls. Now, the number one predictor, whether you're in the case, case with the myocarditis, is whether you had myocarditis already. <laughs> and, and, that, you know, and that dwarfs any other signal, you know, because it's so giant. The problem is that so much of this stuff is hunting for needles in haystacks. Um, we know a lot about illnesses um, that are frequent, and that's the people our age. And, and we know a lot about uh, vaccines if they work very, very well. Like in the original alpha protection of the, the Pfizer and the Moderna, they work 95% efficacy. When we're dealing with things that have that protected against severe disease, when severe disease
1: itself is very rare, you're really hunting. As Adi knows, the rare disease or rare event analysis is one of the very much appreciated in this in the statistics world, but underappreciated more generally how hard it is. And we do this in marketing, too, where we're trying to study click-through rates and trying to understand the impact of something that already happens one-tenth of 1% of the time, and now we want to raise that to 0.11% of the time instead of 0.10. So just here, uh, we're here on Morton Moneyball. This is Eric Grasso, Professor of Marketing and Statistics. I'm here with my co-host, Adi Weiner, and recently joined by my co-host, uh, Cade Massey, who I'll turn the MC duties over to So Cade, we're just here talking about some COVID and we're talking about myocarditis and uh, we were talking about different roles. Like, are there groups of people, Adi was talking about a study for which the my- myocarditis rate may actually be higher than the rate of severe illness due to uh, vaccination or due to COVID. So Kate, uh, uh, your thoughts.
2: Right. Well, first, uh, first good afternoon to you. Um, it's one of the joys of doing this show with such capable colleagues. Things come and go. People have to duck in, duck out. Uh, People lose power. People have emergencies, and we lean on one another. So thank you guys for getting these things kicked off. Appreciate it. You guys are talking methodology, which I think is um, something that we try to do and always helpful. I want to talk for a moment, though, about the substance of the conditions that they were studying. Adi, you've mentioned these heart inflammation issues really almost from the beginning so they they showed up as a potential risk of vaccines early on and i just want to understand more about the condition itself in in particular i've come to believe now you may say look this article is not so convincing i think i think you do believe it but maybe there's still some questions because it's hard as you're emphasizing but over the last two years given the evidence it does seem like there's some risk here of this condition. What I don't think I have a very good handle, handle on is how severe is the condition? How big a deal is this? My vague sense is that the that most cases pass without real consequence, but I could have that wrong. So I'm curious, how would you characterize the distribution of consequences for those who contract, uh, per, whatever the term, myocarditis, pericarditis, can you say any more about that?
0: I'm, I'm certainly not an expert, but I've been reading a little bit about it and uh, I have an anecdote too. So I do have a friend who, whose uh, son has been in and out of the ER uh, quite frequently for the last six months and is really debilitated. It did, generally doesn't end in in death. That's quite rare, but it's happened. Um, there is a concern that potentially these deaths that you see among athletes, and we've, we've all seen them and heard about them, they, are, they happen in high school, they happen in college. They're less frequently in the pros because it's usually... Um, younger younger athletes that it occurs um, who just drop dead on the field and there's a there's a term for this and there's a concern that that is potentially connected to earlier cases of heart inflammation other other source would be a genetic defect that it was never observed um, so that's really what we're dealing with but you know you're talking about serious illness and you're trying to trade off serious illness um, and generally that's really that's really the hard part because You know, we're not talking about death versus death. Um, Those are both so rare. And we're not talking about just, you know, mild illness, Um, because what would you what would you give up in mild illness to prevent a serious case of myocarditis? Probably, you know, I take a lot of mild illness to to ward off, you know, measurable probability of of a heart inflammation.
2: Okay, so what I'm hearing is there seems to be an association with some extreme events. We don't know the exact association we don't know the exact frequency and um it just seems like one of those situations where we want to preach caution and when people are making major policy decisions with weight placed on this it reflects some degree of risk aversion and just kind of let's be clear about these things
0: Well, you know, people are clamoring for vaccines and they're not afraid of myocarditis. So if there was, uh, and they're really clamoring. And I think in the youngest, the youngest age group where I don't think myocarditis is an issue, um, the, in this, fa- the sub five-year-old, um, rate range there, the, you know, a, a, a serious case of COVID is a very, very, uh, rare, rarely rare event. Uh, just maybe a thousand, um, in, uh, in two years, um very very rare and those are and generally they are in individuals you know, babies children who have very severe other health issues so you know if this were a, in a different time if there weren't millions of people clamoring for these for the vaccine we probably would never have approved it but because there's so much of, of a perceived need among the population there was a desire by the authorities to approve it even am though I
1: it's the, kind of murky we know am I, am i the only one amongst us uh, you know as we're all statistician types that um that that find these non-linearities really interesting. Like myocarditis affects people. I'm making it up like age 15 to 25, but not below 15, but it doesn't, you know. It's like you have this, you know, I always find effects that are non-linear because I tend to think in life, most things, this is not one of them, follow just like what I call the dose response model. Like the more age you have, the worse it is. The more comorbidities you have, the worse it is. The more overweight you are, the worse it is. And I just, I, I, the more I've learned, it's, it helps me. The more I've sit on this show, I learned not everything is linear in good or bad. And lots of things have interior solution points or interior optimums or interior minimums where things are either worse or bad.
2: That What's, what's challenging about that, Eric, is that I believe that people see those nonlinearities more than they probably exist And so my field of judgment decision-making spent a generation, decades, kind of trying to beat people out of seeing those linearities. Like, look, just keep it simple. You know, you're you're probably wrong about that kind of thing going on. But now, I mean, so for example, there's there's research. Sindel Mullenathan is a behavioral economist. He's doing a lot of um, computational behavioral science. So big data, machine learning. And one of the things he and his co-authors are looking at is medical decision making. And one of the things they're recovering, given very large data sets, is that expert decision making in the domain of ex- in the domain of medicine involves a lot of interactions. There are a lot of non-linearities in those data, right. and it's a new era for the decision making community because literally we've spent the first generation of our community saying, "Hey, keep it simple." Don't overinterpret things. Probably go with the main effects and don't worry about the interactions. And now, when we can see, measure things more finely, we're saying, okay, okay, now maybe we <laughs> could talk about interactions.
1: Yep, I, I think there's no doubt about that as well. Um, the other topic that uh, I know, Adi, you said you had a second topic. Maybe it was the Paxlovid study. Or it could also be, you know, one of the other interesting topics that I've seen is now we're starting to see that mRNA may have a, not a second life, may have a life that turns out to be even more important in terms of preventing deaths than it had for COVID. I'm hearing lots and lots that suggest that um, very individualized cancer treatments will be developed now because of the mRNA platform and that you know, no one's saying net net that MR, you know, that COVID saved lives. No, I did not say that. I just said the MRNA platform may have benefits, um, may have benefits above and beyond just treating COVID. And I'm hearing more and more about this now from cancer researchers. And if that turns out to be true, then, you know, um, it, it would be, you know, the two Penn professors that came up with this platform does more even deserve the Nobel Prize than they already should get just for this platform and its ability to help uh, COVID.
0: Well, let me just gloss on that. Uh, first of all, um, I mean, the basic idea has been around a long time. And what COVID did was really the, you know, the hurry up, right? This would have been 10 years before this had been uh, put into use if there hadn't been an essentially an emergency. So that's really what happened. Now, our pen professors didn't actually invent the mRNA uh, technology; they just made it work. So that's Um, (laughs) uh, they—it was killing the mice. You know, (laughs) it it wasn't working. I mean, and it was killing that they put it in the mice and they were dying. Um, So they figured out a way to to, uh, deliver it and 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 have it adopted and 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 actually implement. So,
2: guys, I want to take a step back and ask you a question that one of our readers asked us. One of our listeners asked us. A few weeks ago, and um, I'm catching you cold. You've seen the email, but we haven't talked about it. So let's let's take a chance and talk about it cold. And wh- I want to catch it because I know Eric and I aren't going to be on the same show for like the next month. We're going to be we're, we're like perfectly inverted our schedules. Um, and I'd love to hear some thoughts on it. And this comes from David Galensky. He's a doctor and a listener. And David Ross, I'm going to read you the whole thing. I'm an in- immunocompromised sports fan and physician who has enjoyed your show for the last six years. I especially enjoy your COVID discussions and have learned a lot about interpreting COVID statistics. However, I am concerned that recently your discussions have veered from statistics to medical advice. I recommend that you start your COVID segment with a statement that, quote, nothing the hosts say should be taken to be medical advice, end quote. If you listen to the Soblone's comedy podcast, for example, they start every show with that statement. Thank you for the hours of entertainment you have provided me. I'm very curious how you guys respond to our, our listen. I don't think this is the first time we've heard from David, but we very much
1: appreciate yeah. the note.
2: We're always happy to hear from people, and I thought, that, and especially challenging things like this. So I'm curious how you react to it.
1: I can go first just briefly. Um, I think that's probably, um, I think we're probably, at, I hope, a healthy blend, which is I think most of our discussions are based on the science that we've read about, I think most of our discussions are based on the statistics of that science, and I think most of our discussion is based on what do we not know, and maybe a little bit that David's talking about is both the two parts that I would say maybe are less so are sometimes the incredulity that we have, like, they really approve this based on that data Now, of course, that doesn't mean they don't have better data than we have. It just means we don't know on what basis they're making that decision. That's one. And the second might be, there might be a little bit, and I'm as guilty as anybody about this. Well, if this were me, well, who cares if this were me? In other words, I mean, sure, that's why people turn into our show. But I mean, you know, I'm an N equals one. If this were me, this is what I would do. Well, that's not advice. And and I, I, I appreciate David's comment that, my opinion about what I would do if it were me is should never be taken as advice on what any of our listeners do. So I would say the predominance of what we do is we're reading the science, we're trying to understand the statistics of the science, and we're trying to accurately reflect uncertainty. And also, we've even said, boy, there must be other data out there on which they're making decisions, because based on purely the stuff that we've seen, this doesn't make a lot of statistical sense yet. But there is that part that David's talking about. That's my opinion. I'd love to hear Adi's as well.
0: So uh, I, I, for the most part, agree. I mean, basically what I've been encouraging people is to take information and data to their physicians um, when they are infected, for example, with COVID, right? So um, I got COVID and I brought data to my own physician and he, and he, made, he sent me back a prescription um so i thought being educated was worthwhile but it was really a a back and forth i had an illness i needed to get treated i'm not advocating anyone get you know seek self-treatment but you definitely can bring information to your own physician that your physician may not be aware of um so and that i think is one of the the things that that we we the functions we preserve we were fun one of the functions we serve here is to you know really look at the the entire um uh you know science kind of universe and kind of distill what what's known and and bring information to to, to individuals um we know it's certain. we certainly don't get a call in from a listener saying what should we do that i would never take <laughs> That is just that that crosses the line but when we talk about our own treatment and we talk about just interpreting studies i think that's actually quite important
2: oh i got a, i got a couple of comments and then a question um s- s- certainly we we initially set out just to you know talk about the research read the studies make sense of these things i think uh, another thing we have started doing over time is talking about our own decisions and we have had the sense that it was it might be useful to hear us four kind of talk through our own situations and even argue or disagree or take different paths that that might be useful to listeners um but I'm I, I feel a, I think I might feel a little guiltier than you do, but about our having, you know, been a little advisory. But I also I also I also I'm not sure I want to back away from it too much. I'm curious. Where's the line? And I think I mean, he look to accuse a few friggin' professors of giving too much advice is pretty easy target. I mean, we, <laughs> we, we, we tend to kind of want to tell people you know, what the research is and therefore what they should do or whatever. I mean, we, we would advise, I think in some areas. And so where's the line, I mean, you've got opinions, you've got advice, you, you do advise, I'm sure friends and family members. And so where's the line here?
0: Well, I, I, I'll start by saying generally, um, you've you got to be much more careful in a sort of a public space than you do privately, um, you know, because you get, we're, we're dealing with uh, the broad, grou- you know, group of people listening. So you have to be careful with that. But I have been asked very, you know, very specifically, almost you know, point blank, would you recommend X person do this thing? And that's where I'm, you know, if you listen to me, it's pretty clear what what I would answer. But now when you're talking about a specific person at a specific time and specific thing, that's where I wonder, I stop and say maybe no, 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 no. I'm just going to repeat what the data says or what I think I know, but I will not give you a specific advice. It's it's actually quite rabbinic. But, um, uh, you know, so So, So
2: let's 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 talk about why that is rabbinic, because I think there are. Wise reasons to not give individuals, uh, like tell them what you think they should do. And there are like purely legalistic cover your ass reasons. And I suspect those aren't the rabbinic reasons. So when you say it's rabbinic,
0: no, what's, they're the, not. Moti- what's the motivation? So what I'm talking about is that, that people love to talk about uh, sort of the legal principles in the abstract. Um, but those same people would be very, very lost to make a specific um, uh, ruling on an individual basis on a specific matter. Why? Well, because the individual's cases often um, bring up exceptions to the rules. And so what is a general rule might not always be valid in the individual case. And that is, should be left to the person who is entrusted with the decision for an individual. And that, that in this case, it should be that person's doctor. So from a decision, well, I mean, yes and
2: no, even the doctors should be walking up to that line and then stopping short of it because it's the individual. And from a from a decision scientist perspective, I agree entirely. And I very much follow that position, even in very personal advice. It's I mm-hmm. I can't tell people what their preferences are. I can't tell them what their risk tolerance I, is. I don't really understand their objectives in life. Nobody does. They're the only ones who can unpack those things. I can help structure the thing, I can characterize trade-off. But I can't tell them what they should do.
1: But I just want to build on something you said, Cade, which uh, uh, Senthal is working on. You mentioned about these large degree of interactions.
2: I didn't say large degree. I said they exist.
1: They exist. Okay. The point is, that's what you're like. We don't, it gets back to my comment about incomplete information. Your physician may have a lot more information than we have. Your physician knows a lot of things about your history, possibly your risk tolerance, possibly your comorbidities, possibly things that don't necessarily show up on your electronic records that we as the researcher don't know about. And by the way, we talk about this in marketing all the time, is the role of unobservables, how to potentially control for unobservables, which we sometimes do well, sometimes we don't do well. And for someone to prescribe some advice Without, with such incomplete information and thing you've brought up so many times, Cade, in the last two and a half years, really eight years, heterogeneity, how could I possibly give advice except, here's what I'm happy to do for David. I'm happy to say every comment I make on this show is with incomplete information. Every comment I make on this show reflects massive uncertainty and massive heterogeneity. I agree with that. <laughs> and therefore, take the match value between what I'm saying and your specific situation with extreme caution.
2: Uh, elaborate. Yes, because uh, what's, elaborate. what's true what, on what, average. Adi, Adi just that last. No. Okay, go ahead, Adi. Then we'll come back, Eric. Please, I
0: please. just want to just gloss on what what things are going to be very, very true on average, but not true in individual right. cases. Good.
2: So, Eric, you use this terminology. Just unpack it a second. Take, take the match value between what I'm talking about in your life. What do you mean by
1: that? Well, so what I mean is, as Adi said, there could be a prescriptive decision, meaning the optimal thing to do. But for someone that's at, let's say, the median level, someone that has the average or typical level of comorbidities, the typical we- whether uh, typical value of you know, overweightness, the typical value of sickness. And that's what I can provide some prescriptive advice for, but you might be at the 90th percentile on this and the 20th percentile on that. And the 70th percentile on that. Therefore that prescriptive advice, this is something Adi and I were talking about just before you joined, there's a distance between the typical person and you. And Mm -hmm. the larger that distance, the less relevant that optimal choice is for the prototypical person. And so that's the challenge. So you've just brought us back, Kate, to the first five minutes of our show today, which was saying to me, everything in life or not everything, lots of things in life are about distance functions. And (laughs) no, no, I'm just saying the advice that we give has to be a function between who's the target individual have in mind and where do you sit in this big multivariate space of possible, you know, X variables that represent you.
2: So I I think that's very well put, very appropriate. It also strikes me as possibly tragic radio. I mean, rhetorically, (laughs) rhetorically, how do we get away with feeling like everything needs to be caveated? You said incomplete information, uncertainty and heterogeneity.
1: I take great pride in what I just said. You know, I not a caveat.
2: but Eric, I agree, I agree with you, but rhetorically, it's uh, it's challenging. It's challenging to live by that and still be rhetorically successful. Let's leave it at that.
1: That's a good point.
2: All right, gentlemen, that has been enough time on COVID-19 for this week. That has been our first quarter. We've still got three quarters to go. Come back and join us
0: after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball.
1: On Business Radio.
0: Welcome back.
2: Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting most of the day, most of the day today with my two colleagues, longtime collaborators and good friends, Eric Bradlow and Audie Weiner. Shane Jensen, the fourth of the co-hosts here at Wharton Moneyball, is out and about doing Shane Jensen things this week. He will be back. We are into summer schedules now, and there are some ins and outs on people's schedules. We're probably not going to be back together as a foursome until sometime in August or even September, but there are four of us, so some combination of us are here every week. You guys can be here, too. We just had a question from a reader in our, our listener <laughs> in our first quarter. David Galensky wrote a couple weeks ago. We got him in here into the discussion. We love to hear from you guys. Write us. Write us on Twitter. At W Moneyball is our handle, at W Moneyball. We follow all of our guests. We tweet about the world of sports and sports analytics. Good way to reach out to us. Questions, claims, complaints, whatever you got. Or you can email us. Our mailbag is via email. The email address is moneyball at wharton.upen.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upen.edu. We hear from a number of people every week. We read everything you send in. We get as much of it as we can on the air and we always appreciate getting your reactions hearing what you're thinking about getting your questions keep on sending them our way all right gentlemen i am i'm concerned i'm worried i'm worried because we have just wrapped up i think um a very rich season of sports and it is wrapped tight and gone this is like being you know january 2nd or something we've cleared a substantive stage And I'm sad because it was intense and fun and long-lasting. We've come through, most notably, the NBA playoffs and the NHL playoffs. For those paying attention to college sports, we've come through the Men's and Women's College World Series, both of which were great fun. We've come through a couple of the major golf tournaments already. It's been a packed, fun spring, and now it's a little bit of a respite how are y'all react to this? Y'all have baseball in front of you. I don't think you're ever bored with baseball. I have to say football is not so far away that we can't start thinking about it, which is helpful, but it's been fun this spring. And I was a little sad to see the Stanley cup wrap up and the world move on from these great, great series. That
1: was a great series. That was unbelievable. That was great. Hockey, two interesting teams Um, and I agree. I'm, I would never have thought I would have said this 20 years ago, but I was sad that hockey ended. I really enjoyed watching it.
2: (laughs) Well, and then, you know, basketball before it. So we're a week after the warriors clinched as well. And that was an an epic and unexpected playoff series. And it's nice to get some unexpected in the NBA. Um, y'all might, y'all probably weren't paying as much attention. Honestly, I wasn't paying as much attention once we got down to the finals, but Ole Miss beat Oklahoma in the men's college world series. They swept them. The, the, they, Two, two teams emerged from both sides of the 18 bracket in Omaha, and then they play a two of three. And the two teams that emerged were neither one seeded, which means at the beginning of the tournament, they did not host a regional. They weren't one of the top 16 teams in the country, according to those who seeded. The team that won Ole Miss not only wasn't seeded, they were literally the 64th team into the bracket. They not only had to play every team on the road, but they were the last team seated um to 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 get the thing going it was their first national championship congrats to Ole Miss they did it in fine fashion they came back at the end of the second game to knock off the Sooners I'm so sorry so sorry to see Oklahoma not get the second baseball collegiate championship this spring I know y'all have been paying attention to other things I'm curious and what what is on your mind what has caught your eye lately in the world of sports
0: well, I know that uh, Eric and I were alone for a little bit, and we, we we didn't we resisted the opportunity to just sit there and just talk to the Yankees. Um, but the thing that you know, it be two weeks in a row where basically the Yankees didn't lose in between our in between our our uh, our, our recordings. But last uh, the last four days, um, well, not quite exactly the last four days they, they played Oakland yesterday. The Yankees played four games in, against the Astros, who would probably be their number one rival in the East in the American mm-hmm. League, and they were no hit by the by the Astros yeah right they were beaten solidly in another game and the Yankees um did manage to um even up the series with two two wins with basically walk-off home runs home runs by Aaron Judge cap you know with two terrific comebacks so hold on, hold on Audie, just clarification of, so
2: I knew that I knew yeah. that one of them y'all I, I I participate in Yankee baseball via our text threads and I and I mm-hmm. actually enjoy that so when y'all get excited mm-hmm. about Judge all stand, three-run homer, mm-hmm. walk-off in the 10th or whatever. That's exciting. Are you saying the other win against the Astros was also because of a walk-off run? A
0: homer it run? was another. It was a judge walk-off. In fact, yeah. the Astros manager said the Astros two, judge two. <laughs> a little bit unfair funny because the rest of – yeah, the, you know, Rizzo and Stanton, they were hitting home runs too. It's not exactly – he was not the solo act, but he did, he did walk the game off. Um, but, you know, the thing that gets me is that, you know, this has to do with the forecast, right? Where are, what are we actually thinking about the Yankees and the Astros, vis-a-vis the Astros? Say the Red Sox who are coming in and their second place in the American League East. Who do we think are the better teams actually going forward? And there was a, we had some discussion about fan graphs who basically ranked the Yankees as the fourth best team in, in, or fifth best team in the major leagues. And, and it's almost an absurd calculation, but reflective of their desire to pull back very strongly to the preseason prior estimates of strength. And really severely discount the first third, even the first 40% of the season. But my view is, you know, once you're 40% of the season in, then the prior should be much more heavily discounted than that. Now, while I wouldn't predict the Yankees to win 700 going forward, I would predict them to, to win 600, and, and Fangraphs wasn't doing even that.
1: Um, on the other hand, let's after just do a little bit, series, just, just quickly, yeah. Adi, yeah. just let's do a little bit of math. Yeah. If the Yankees have played, mm-hmm. I think it's um, 74 games, and so I think that's the number. And so, if they play, it let's is, say they have is. roughly they have ninety roughly ninety games left. If they win sixty percent, that's fifty four more wins. I believe they have fifty one or fifty two right now. So that gets them roughly fifty two. Hey, that's Eric, do. so that gets Eric, them to one hundred. On, let me box.
2: let me slow you down and let's do this more precisely and just take let's take it as an exercise on shrinkage. And so, real quickly, let's yep. just motivate this whole thing because we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, and now let's just do it. We always talk about regressing our forecast to the mean. It's, it's one of the main mistakes slave people make. And it's one of the most responsible things an expert forecaster can do. But we kind of wave our hands at it. And we, also, we often give Audi credit for shrinking lots of interesting, important forecasts to the mean.
0: We, we, we did it with the he presidential the
1: term base rate. A lot of times he'll use the term base rate. But OK,
0: which is I'm, which is the, which is the historical mean. As, uh, yeah. So me, mean,
2: it me, me, doesn't have to be mean. It can be whatever, whatever the mean of the 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 process that you're forecasting. It may not be the global mean. Um, so base rate's fine. OK, so this, that's why we're doing this because we tend to wave our hands and we all kind of do it mostly in kind of a gestalt fashion. But we can be more precise. And so let's take a simple example and work through some of those precise details, here
1: so i'll work i'll I'll go through my assessment of this one. So the Yankees have played seventy four games, okay, and they're playing I think roughly seven thirty baseball okay If you look at the beginning of the season, let's say the Yankees were predicted roughly at fifty five percent right that was that would be eighty Nine ninety wins somewhere in that range. So now the question is: Is it
2: really that mild? Their forecast. It was
1: maybe. Let's say it was fifty-eight percent. It wasn't sixty. They weren't. It wasn't. It was about fifty-four percent. Yeah. So let's wow. just say fifty. Let's just say fifty-five for round numbers. Real quickly. Real yeah, quickly.
2: Please. Where uh, where did that number come from? What was their win percentage last year, for example?
1: <laughs> well, first of all,
0: those the win percentage last year was higher than that. But you have to remember those numbers are are also shrunk very heavily from the previous year down to the global mean. So at the beginning they might of be, the season, they might be shrunk no up. Team,
2: they might be shrunk up by the way. You said shrunk down. So shrunk, you might shrink up uh, yes bad right.
0: teams. Uh, you might shrink up if you, if you're a, if you're if you did badly you would be shrunk up. This is very, you know, this is very complicated because basically what it has to do is you you ask yourself and this is this is the real question when how frequently do teams do do teams have a true talent greater than 600? And most baseball analysts would say extremely rarely. In other words, teams that win 600 are teams that are, tend to be not better than average, but also quite lucky. Um, and so when you, when you look at next year's forecast, a team that goes 620, 630, um, you know, that's talking about 100, and 100 wins or so, you generally believe that they are certainly better than average, I mean, substantially better than average, but also a great deal of luck. And so for the next year, you bring them back down towards the average. Okay. And that's okay. where you end up predicting nobody really above 56, 57 percent. If you did it right, you would do that.
1: So I want to extend what Adi just said, though, before I get into how I might do a shrinkage calculation for the rest of the season or and Adi, I'm sure will have his version, although I think our version is going to be the same because we both believe in the beta binomial distribution. But ignoring that for a second, I thought what Adi was going to talk about was he just said the Astros went two and two against the Yankees. The Astros are probably going to end up somewhere in the mid-90s wins. So why don't we just come up with the basis right now that they may be at the same level? In other words, the Yankees may win 103, 105. The Astros may win 96, 95. Yes, the Yankees are a better team, but measurably better? Maybe they're both really 600-win teams. The Yankees just happen to win a few more games Good. And there's no reason to believe, given priors also recently, that the Yankees should be even heavily favored against Good. the Astros were they to play That's a natural, logical empirical consequence of the statements you both made
2: and let, let me just add on that I like this kind of let's keep it rough let's not the illusion of precision can can lead you to down to some un Inappropriate conclusion. Say, look, we don't really know. These teams seem approximately right. So let's just keep it both at whatever number we decide. So great.
1: Yeah. So let me just do my shrinkage calculation for the year and then Adi can grade me because given he's about to start the Moneyball program, he can grade me on my statistical inference here.
2: Hold on, real so, quickly. What's the Moneyball program?
1: Well, I, I, why would I talk about it when the founder and the person <laughs> that runs it is here? Adi, please go ahead.
0: So the Moneyball program is the Moneyball Academy program that I've been running for the last two, six or seven summers, um, which just began this week. We're in our one-week virtual program um, for high school students. We teach, we teach Moneyball statistics and programming and using R, and we have terrific guests all, all over the sports analytics community. And, but my three-week program is going to begin in a, in a week and a half, and I have some very illustrious uh, students in my class. This coming coming year, uh, high school students, including uh, Eric Bradlow's youngest son, will be participating. <laughs> His second son participated uh, some years back, um, and it's about uh, seventy five students from all over the world who come in. They live at the University of Pennsylvania, and they do three hours of statistics lectures, and they they study how to program in an R, and they also listen to terrific guests. and And at the end of it, we'd actually we don't we don't get to actually doing Bayesian estimation, uh, but we do do we do essentially unpack this conversation we're having here, where we start off with priors and we, we think about probabilities of, of in, in, in this particular situation, what is the probability that a baseball team would emerge that has a true 700 winning percentage? And most people would say that answer, that, that would happen maybe once every 50 years, maybe once every 75 years. And so I would, if you watch the Yankees, they're already there at 730 what we would call a maximum likelihood estimator. Someone who knows nothing about the history of baseball has never seen it or played it or does not, an alien comes from wherever and observed that the Yankees won 73% of their games and they know nothing. What else would they predict going forward other than 73%? Mm-hmm. The answer is nothing. They would pre- predict 73%. But someone who knows a lot about baseball knows that 73% winning percentage teams is it's so rare, once in a century type of, type of event, that much more likely in these 74 games, a a team with much lower winning percentage just got quite a bit more lucky. And and while both of them are rare, uh, a a team getting lucky is rare, but a team winning 73% of its game, true percentages, is even rarer. And so we end up shrinking back down towards a number closer to 60%.
2: Adi, what, what indications do we have of this true percentage? We've watched 74 games. That's a lot of baseball. I mean, what are yeah, different ways I've of getting at So, I'm... for example, the Pythagorean theorem. Doesn't Bill James give us some sense of what this thing should be? Or
0: Yes. So, so what, 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 what the Pythagorean theorem I know it's not perfect. essentially tries – so what that's trying to do is trying to, to unpack a different – a piece of the luck, right? So in baseball, we have something called the, the – the, how you distribute your runs can end up with more wins than you would predict right? So if, you, if, you have, if, you, if you've scored a lot more runs than you've given up, but you won a lot of the games in blowouts, then that would predict that you're actually worse than, than, you're, than, than yep. you, even though you have a lot more runs than, 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 than people give up. Um, that's different than winning a lot of close games. So the, the, the Pythagorean theorem tries to predict what your winning percentage is given your run differential. And when there's a gap there, um, you usually expect people to regress towards their run differential rather than their winning percentage. Um, but, but that's, but what I'm arguing is that the Yankees have just scored a lot of runs and given up a lot fewer based on a good bit of luck. Um, and that's, and the reason why I say that is that how many teams have ever won 700 or higher in the, um, the Mariners did it. I think the Yankees might've done it, but this is, think about how many games, how many season teams are happened. There's thousands. This is an incredibly rare event. Winning, having a 700 team, and therefore, I we're losing I don't you just, just a little bit.
2: So, um, I'm gonna um, jump in here. Well, it may be that you're losing me.
1: No, nope. um, am I back? No, I hear you. I hear you. Okay, we can hear you well. Okay. No, I was just gonna come out. Look, what it all comes down to at the end, and you, this is what you were getting at, Cade, when you said, Isn't seven a lot of games? What all Bayesian computation combining the observed data and called the which is called the likelihood and the prior is gonna come down to. Is how much relative weight do you put on the prior and how much relative weight do you put on the observed data? And we know the observed data, whatever it is 52 and 22, 51 and 23, whatever the Yankees record is, that's the observed data. Now the question is the prior, let's even say you said their prior was 550. Yeah, is that five and a half, four and a half? Is that 11 and nine? Is that 55 and 45? Because the answer is. The nice thing about this distribution called the beta binomial is you can treat the prior as a prior number of wins and losses. So you literally add that to the observed number of wins. So just as an example, let's say we treat the prior as 55-45. Well, we could take – so what's the posterior estimate going to be? Well, I take the 55 prior wins, add it to the 51 or 52 observed wins. That's 106 or 107. I take the 45 prior losses, add them to the 21 or 22 observed losses. Now I've got 67. Now I just compute the winning percentage in that updated system, and that's my point estimate of how many the Yankees are going to win. But I just made up 55 and 45 but people do know stuff about how much weight to put on the prior in baseball. And part of it can relate to what Adi said, which is we have a historical distribution of winning percentages. And so if you were to choose a prior that would be inconsistent with that, then that would be one way to use the previous data to estimate that prior. Uh, Let me just uh, add to that. There's a, a
0: researcher at MLB, uh, who's written many wonderful books on baseball. His name is Tom Tango. And he actually, uh, uses the number 35-35. That is his, his, uh, All right. his, obviously has to be 50%, but that gives you a, a good bit of padding there. So it's hard to move away from that 50%. Hold on, hold on. Hold on
2: what, I, y'all have lost me. What is
0: 35-35? So he essentially says that everybody starts the season with 70 games played where they've won 35 and they've lost 35. And if you oh. use that as a, as, a, as a padding and now look at the game Evolve, that's your future forecast. So if the Yankees have won 50, 52 and lost you know uh, 17, you'd add that to the 35 wins and 35 losses, refigure out your winning percentage, and that's your prediction going forward. Now, other people but might so, not use
2: 35-35. So, Adi, well, that's that's nice. I, I want to come back and say it, it speaks to what Eric's talking about in terms of treating priors as um, – I, I, the, ter- the term I have is fictitious sample size. Um, it's right. like yeah. – it, you you have a real sample size and then you have a prior of some fictitious sample size that will indicate how how much weight you are, you're going to put on it. What's different about Tango's 35, 35, is that it treats everybody the same. When we have pretty really right. good information on treating people differently, right? So if we if we have confidence right. that they're not all the same, then it shouldn't be that you pull everybody to 500. You might give them all 70 games, but some you pull to 40.45, some you pull to .55, etc.
0: Exactly. In fact, what you would do is you would move it a little bit, but the 70 games establishes the variance. So, by using the padding method, you don't have to talk about variance. Um, okay. if, if you were to think about it as a statistician, I would think of mean and variance on the prior. But when you think about it in pads, uh, in this sort of pre, this fake data, you don't think about it. You just think about it. 35 35 means, or for the Yankees, it might be, say, 37. The prior might be 37 33 or 38-32, um, yeah. but that essentially fixes the variance. I would probably want to change the variance by team two uh, because I think that not only do they have different means, they also have different variants.
2: Well, but you're getting pretty fine at that point, and now you're wandering out oh, yeah. th- thinner ice. And so most people don't <laughs> need to be playing with variance. They just, they're just doing doing enough to play with means. OK, so we've well, let me got just say quickly, idea.
1: if what Adi said is true, that you have roughly 70 games, that means we have an observed data that's roughly 70. We that's have right. a post data that's roughly 70. So that would yep. mean you could take a simple 55 percent the prior, 73 percent right. observed, go halfway in between. And there you go. And by the way, that's what I would have done. That's probably the amount of weight I would have given, which would put Kiss. the Yankees at about 64, 64 percent, which would mean about one hundred and three hundred and four hundred five wins somewhere in that range. So that's my Bayesian
2: estimate. So we got lucky. That no, we that's happen going happens.
1: forward. That's going forward, Eric.
0: Yeah, they still get this. They've won the games already. Oh, so, yo, yo, <laughs> just, so I get an A minus. You're right, Adi. That's 90 games left. So
1: that means they win 57, 58 more, which means puts them up at yes. more between 108 110. to 110. Yeah, good. Yeah. You are correct, sir.
2: Okay, so that's that's Eric's that's Eric's quick back in the envelope estimate for 109 wins for the Yankees, which is a really high number. And and just to Contrast that with back with fangrafts. By the way, we're talking to Jay Jaffe later today from Fangraphs. Fangraphs has them now at 103. So they've finally snuck up. They're finally buying into the record they're observing. But I want to come back to one question, and that is we happen to get lucky and we use this Tango 70 game prior, and we're and we've happened to observe about 70 games. How should people think about it, that that prior weight in general? That's going to tell you how much you're going to shrink. So you've got you're shrinking to some prior estimate. It might be 50-50, it might not, but the amount you shrink is the weight that Tango 70 gains. Why just real mm-hmm. quickly, where does Tango get the 70? Because it's not a magic number and he didn't make it up. There's a reason he chose 70.
0: It, it comes from variance. Okay. So and that's where it is. So basically the variance, you want it to have average 50%, and you want the variance to match the historical frequency. So he looks at that, and then he establishes it. He matches it with the historical frequency.
1: Yeah, just very quickly, the more you'd make that N, the tighter the distribution would be. You have the empirical frequencies. By the way, just one second. What Adi's talking about is what truly empirical Bayes' inference is. You use the past data to estimate the prior. So the sample size can be matched to the observed historical frequencies to choose the total sample size to use in the prior.
2: So if you use too strong a prior, you're pulling people into too narrow a distribution. Your posterior will be too, too narrow relative to historical. And if that, you, and if that you,
1: prior, the prior will be too narrow. The prior won't match the historical data.
2: Right, right, right. Good. Okay. So an example, we'll surely come back to this kind of thing, but I wanted to be just a little bit more specific about the thing that we wave our hands at so often, especially because it's such an important thing to do in the way people make their forecasts, formally and informally all the time. All right, guys, that's been two quarters of Wharton Moneyball. Two quarters to go.
0: Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball
1: on Business Radio.
2: Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Cade Massey hosting this afternoon with Eric Bradlow, Adi Weiner. Eric, professor of marketing statistics at Wharton, Adi professor of stats at Wharton. I am a practice professor in the operations information and decisions department. Shane Jensen, another stats prof floating around doing Shane things. He'll be back. Gentlemen, we uh, have another open segment here. We're recording on Tuesday afternoon as we typically do. The show will go up on Wednesday, be replayed a few times over the course of the week. Wimbledon's off the ground. I think we need to hear a little bit about Wimbledon. I, I want to say one quick thing about golf. We talked a couple weeks ago. Dan Rapaport was on leading into the U.S. Open. We talked about Live. He was kind of there at Ground Zero while things were being announced. We keep on getting these announcements. Brooks Cupcat was the latest big name to go over to Live. Um, something that caught my eye was that we have college golfers reporting offers. So Pearson Cootie, one of the University of Texas golfers that just won the national championship and famously the twin son of Kyle Cootie, the twin grandsons of Charles Cootie masters champ from 72 or so Pearson Cootie been offered big money by Liv. They didn't say exactly how much, but they working through his agent trying to get him to come out. He's, you know, 21, 22 years old. <laughs> I, I from, from a, from a live strategy, I don't think this is the craziest thing in the world, but gracious me. Eric.
1: Yeah, no, I think we sort of talked to us just briefly last week, maybe, and even two weeks ago, Kate, as well, which is, if you think about who Liv's target population should be, it should either be people that are, you know, unlikely to win majors anymore, and maybe slightly past their prime, which you could argue Charles Schwartzel, Sergio Garcia these people are probably past their prime. I'm not saying they couldn't win a major, but it's less likely. Yeah. The other end of the distribution is, you. I don't even know the number, but you offer a million dollars, $2 million to someone who's never played on the PGA Tour yet, like yeah. the uh, rookie or uh, the... Uh,
2: soon-to-be rookie. Yeah, yeah, soon-to-be
1: rookie that you're talking about, the amateur you're talking about. He doesn't know if he's even going to make the PGA Tour. Yeah. and and therefore, And even then... Uh, How long is this career going to be? So I think they're making an absolutely great strategy. And then what you do is you also then you take the big money and you give it to the Brooks Kepkas of the world who can legitimize your actual tour. So this is actually, you know, this is an optimal resource allocation problem. And you don't want to give you want to give money to the people at you don't give big money, but enough money to people at the extremes allocate the resources in the middle. I think it's absolutely a great strategy. And when I saw them recruiting college golfers, I'm like, whoever's doing the optimization of dollars for them with a fixed budget constraint, good on you.
2: So is there any chance that we, we need to reassess our opinion of this thing? So if we set aside the morality of it, which yeah. is problematic, have a, have very a hard time problematic. Doing, Me too. Um, if you just thought about it from an entertainment perspective, it, it, I think it's kind of fun in a way that some golfers will only be on the on the course together at the majors. I think it's kind of almost a neat feature. It's like the World Series back when the AL and NL didn't play regular season games together. It just adds a little bit of excitement. It's only four times a year, granted. The other thing is what Rappaport said when y'all were interviewing him a couple of weeks ago. It might prompt innovation on the PGA, which is probably long
1: overdue which is happening already. They're already they've added like four or something events next year. No cut events for big money. Huh? Where have we heard that before <laughs> yeah. with limited fields? But let's let's uh-huh. also let's also be clear. They you say they're going to be able to play at the majors. You have to qualify for the. majors. Yeah, and right. how do you qualify is wins on the PGA tour and world ranking points. Well, and so right. now, now let's be clear. If the Liv doesn't get world ranking points, they're in a different situation. And, of course, this is different than the Masters, by the way. This is another interesting – Masters, you also qualify. If you've won the Masters – so Dustin Johnson plays Live. he's disqualified. But as far as I know, I mean, unless the Masters were to come out and say he can't play the Masters, I'd be shocked. Sergio Garcia has wow. won the Masters. He gets yeah. to play. Yeah. So uh, your point is interesting. From an entertainment point of view, the overall level has to be, by definition, lower – But you're right. When will we get to see them play together? It's at best in the majors.
2: That's it's a fair point. There's caution there because it might not happen. The the world golf rankings, the interesting feature there is the political economy of it, because apparently all these tour commissioners are the ones who sit on the board of the world golf rankings. Right. I I would have just assumed, yes, of course, they'll give live the points of whatever. But we don't live in a purely rational world. We live in a political world. And so it'll be interesting to see how that thing plays out. Hey, one other note, y'all indulge me this for a second because it ha- actually been a big story in sports in the last week. Y'all have to know, I got a little bit of love from you on the thread, but Arch Manning, number one recruit in the 2023 class, commits to the University of Texas. Who is Arch Manning? Well, name's familiar. Obviously, he's the grandson of Archie Manning. He is the nephew of Peyton and Eli. He's the son of Cooper. Cooper's the third Manning brother who played some college football, got hurt. Now he's like the financial manager for the family, but he's the oldest grandkid, I believe, and coming through. No, maybe his sister is older, um, but he's coming through. He shocked many of the world by signing with a team that went five and seven and famously lost to Kansas at home, as everyone likes to remind us, lost to Kansas at home last year. But there's a lot of belief in Steve Sarkeesian among. Here's the thing. The endorsement from the Manning family to say we believe in Sarkeesian, we believe in that offense, we believe in those minds is so meaningful to that school. Could you ask for a better endorsement? And so it's been big news on the college football front and obviously on the particular college that I pay the most attention to. It's been it's been good fun to see.
1: No, you're not indulging me because this allows us to talk about our third topic that we don't talk about quite as often, but we are a business school. Um, He's the anchor store, right? Now that you oh, have yeah. Arch Manning, now all of a sudden the other players want to play at Texas. Yeah. And so this is hey, absolutely... recruits, I think I saw. Yeah, so this is this is a fantastic thing for Texas. And, you know, if it helps them get in other players, that's, that's fantastic. And um, now what's interesting, of course, is... See, I'm going to stay on this topic for at least this whole show, I promise, only maybe this whole show. Now we're talking about... We're not talking about Peyton Manning or... Uh, Uh, Eli Manning's kid, we're talking about Cooper Manning's kid. So his distance from greatness is greater. (laughs) So now, no, no, no. I'm just questioning if one were to create a genetic tree of football greatness, he's Cooper Manning's son. Yeah. So now the question becomes, assuming Cooper Manning, maybe, maybe, I don't know, this got less athletic ability and greatness than (laughs) Eli or Peyton. He's now the son of the lesser Manning. No, I'm just saying, we don't know that Arch Manning is going to be great. That's the only comment I was trying to make.
2: So a couple of things here. Fair enough. Um, second, how much of quarterback is uh, physical attributes versus preparation, intellect, and that kind of stuff? So that's the other thing. But third, I want it gives us a chance to talk about um, football rankings, these recruiting rankings, because he is, I think, the second ever. Re- uh, Adi, this goes to some of the research that you've started that we've mm-hmm. talked about for years he's the second ever perfect ranked? one he's not only one but he's, he's a unanimous one so he's got a perfect 1.0 aggregate rating which i think is the second wow. time ever but here's the thing that is only relative to other members of his class it's not in absolute terms so you can't compare them across classes so for example trevor lawrence was crazy high rated he's the highest he's the highest one in audi's in, in audi's data set but he's not a perfect no, he was, one. you have
0: to be careful you, you have to be careful because what i was doing was trying to predict their probability of being um, I, I, know. Drafted. I, I know i and know. trevor lawrence's attributes not only he, he didn't get a 1.0 he had a 0.99 um in terms of this the the recruiting ranking but he had other attributes like being 6.6 or 6.5 or something and 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 yeah. that yes. kind of led to that forecast. So how tall well is Arch Manning? That's he's 6'4", you know, He's six four.
2: He's six four. But I'm not. I don't really need to be going into that. But I, what I mean is, um, we know that Trevor Lawrence was this highly touted kid, and some people are looking at these recruiting rankings and saying, "Hold on, Arch Manning's supposed to be better than Trevor Lawrence." And this is the thing: recruiting rankings are silent on that. There's no cross-year, cross-generational comparisons because all those aggregates are based on relative ranking within your class now unanimous number one in the class is pretty high some people have asked would he have that if he weren't a manning and the answer is almost certainly no but what advantages as a quarterback do you have when you come out of that quarterback dynasty and so it's not clear that the weight on the manning name should be zero in fact i think it's pretty clear the weight on the manning name should be bigger than zero Anyway, that's enough on a Texas, on a, on a a high school junior in New Orleans, Louisiana, for the show for now. But it does raise some interesting issues. All right, let's talk Wimbledon. We're on to the third major of the year now. It's for those of us who were raised in the Borg era. It's always going to have a special place, I think. What what should we expect about the next
0: couple of weeks, Eric?
1: Well, you know, I I think there's a lot of unknowns. I mean, let's start with the women's side, which is equally exciting to the men's side. Um, We have Iga Switek, who's the number one player in the world, who now I think has now won 36 consecutive matches because she won today. Um, Can she play well on grass? Uh, She's now got the longest winning streak in the last, I think it's 25 or 30 years in women's tennis. She's now won 36, as I said, consecutive matches. And she, of course, won the French Open. So she's got those two majors. And she won every turn once. Once um, Ash Barty, who was the number one player in the world, uh, Australian, who won the Australian Open, essentially Iga Swiatek has won every single match and tournament since. And so she's won in the world. Can she play well on grass? The
2: Eric, what's the longest? What's yeah. What's the longest streak? When is this going to start turning into something?
1: The only numbers I've ever seen as the longest streak, like in the open era. And she's there. She's there for the longest streak in the women's era. She had tied Venus Williams at 35, but the win at Wimbledon now today gives her 36. So we're we're, we're,
2: off the top of your head. What's your opinion? And how would we know this takes us to another familiar topic? To what extent is that because of her singular greatness? Or to what extent is that because of a weak competitive field?
1: I think in her case now, I'm starting to believe in singular greatness. I'm starting to believe that, you know, I'm never going to put her in the neighborhood. You can never put someone in the neighborhood. It's not fair to say Serena Williams, you know, Navratilova, Everett, Steffi Groff. Let's come on. That's not fair. But she, I would not
2: be. You mean, you mean it's not fair to say that this early in their career? This early you, you in would her say it career. Eventually. Yes. Okay. Eventually.
1: Okay. I, but I would put her in the neighborhood of, is she potentially a Justin Ennin or a, someone like Martina Hingis? Or someone well, I, like
2: that, Eric. It strikes me that what you're doing is shrinking your forecast, which is responsible forecasting. So this connects to our conversation in the last quarter. It could well be that she turns out to be Martina Navratilova. It's just that you would never forecast that this early in somebody's career, no matter how exemplary their records so are. far.
1: I would be surprised. Put this away. If you asked me to put a lower bound on the number of Grand Slam championships she's going to win, she has two. I would put a lower bound at five i would say she'll win at least five
2: okay so remind us about the distribution of um lifetime grand slams on the women's side
1: i would it's a great question i would say that there's probably i'm making i don't know the number i 20 women that have won that many grand slams five or more i mean both williams sisters the williams sisters
2: are Give us the numbers. What are the tops? How many is Serena won?
1: Well, Margaret court is the top. She didn't play all in the open era, but she won 24. Okay. Serena Williams is at 23. Yeah. I think Steffi Groff is at 22. Oh my gosh. Um, Navratilova and Everett are both at 18. Okay. Um, and then, you know, Venus Williams is at seven. I'm sure there are others in between there. Justin Ennis may at five and six, uh, Martina Hingis somewhere in that range. Um, uh, Maria Sharapova won five. There's an example. Maria Sharapova won five Grand Slams in her career. So, could, so I think at worst, Iga Switek is Maria Sharapova. Although I will say what makes Sharapova unique is even though she's only won five, she did win each one. So oh, that's wow, what's nice. remarkable. Okay. She's won one of them twice. Okay.
2: What about but, Monica Sellis?
1: Monica Sellis was absolutely phenomenal and great. Had she not been stabbed, you know, she was stabbed right in the prime of her career. I don't know okay. the exact number, okay. but okay. she won a bunch, and she, she would have won 12 to 15 minimum. She was a, a phenomenal talent.
2: Okay, so you give us the, the Switech floor. You're putting a five. What about the Switech ceiling? How old is this woman? 20. What, uh, age, what uh, age do women start, stop w- winning their Grand Slam championships? When did Serena tap out?
1: Well, Serena, when
2: does Steffi Graf tap out?
1: 32 33 tends to be around the age at which they tap out, but Serena okay. won her last one, I think, at 36.
2: Okay, so she's got 12 to 15 years in front of her. Yep, she's won two,
1: right? And but we're she's, impre- two we're and she's only been playing them for three years, but I will say she's won the French twice. She hasn't won another. That's okay. why I said we're seeing her on grass. Is she gonna? I don't know if she can win Wimbledon, I don't know if she can win on hard courts. I've seen her win two on two French.
2: What what ranking was she in the world before this streak started happening?
1: She she was number one. She became number one when Ash Barty retired. Okay, and so and that's when the streak started. She's won all of these matches as the number one player in the world. Okay, okay. So, no, she was already because she had won the French Open last year or the year before the year before last. And then she's kind of, she played well. No, no, no. She was number two in the world when Ash Barty retired.
2: Setting her aside, who do we think is the top grass player in the women's game right now?
1: That's a tough call. I mean, you know, probably you'd have to pick someone that's won Wimbledon. I mean, I wouldn't leave out a 30, 31 year old Petra Kvitova is a two-time Wimbledon champion is a great player on grass. Um, it's probably going to be someone that hits the ball really hard as a, a woman out near recently owns Jabor, who I like a lot on the grass courts. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be some, Danielle. It's going to be someone that hits the ball really hard um, and we'll see what happens, but the women's side is wide open. And then of mm-hmm. course you got the men's side, which is you got Nadal going for number three. Now he's going for the third this year. He's won the first two of the year now, and mm-hmm. he won a tough match today, but Djokovic had a tough match yesterday the men's side i don't think has been more wide open i so I hold think, on
2: i'm hearing i'm seeing this alcaraz the supposed boy wonder had a one seven matcher, five in the fifth, a five set
1: seven five in the fifth i think it was a
2: tiebreaker in the fifth of his first round at no Wimbledon? no
1: no not seven six seven five i think but okay rega- but regardless grass is not his surface yet let's remember Grass wasn't Nadal's surface. Yeah, well, he only won two Wimbledons. <laughs> All right, well, I don't know. Two Wimbledons is not so bad. I'm sure if you gave Alcaraz a career of two Wimbledon wins, he would take it.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see that you're noting Isner and Murray in round two. Is Andy Murray just, still a threat in this tournament? Uh, really? I didn't, did I know Andy Murray was still playing
1: competitive? Tennis? I think Andy Murray is a threat. to. He, he can't, just his body won't hold up. Can he beat any, not any, can he beat a top 20 player? Yes. Yes, he can. Can he beat three or four in a row? No. Andy Murray could make it to the round of 16. That would be probably the top. I would not be surprised if he beats Isner. Okay. I would not be surprised. I just thought that was an interesting second round match that's coming up.
2: Eric, are there any, are there any, um, bracket and is there any bracket intrigue you know with the with the french that we just came through there was all this intrigue about some of the guys all being stacked up in one place is there anything interesting about the way the wimbledon is the men's tournament is bracket
1: no because in this case remember uh the number two player in the world or sorry the number one player in the world i apologize the number one player in the world Daniil medvedev doesn't get to play wimbledon because he's russian ah, and so there's some intrigue no no but okay. the yeah but the intrigue of that is that means djokovic and the dollar one and two which means they're on the opposite sides of the draw. Okay. So they at least could meet now, not in the quarterfinals, like the French, they could meet in the finals. Okay. And that would be the only place they could meet.
2: Um, Who's your best bet to, not, to knock one of those guys off and make the finals if, neither, if one of them doesn't?
1: See, here's the thing. You didn't say win the tournament. I think on a good day, Nick Kyrgios could uh, beat anybody in the world. I really? think on a good day... Is Zverev, grass? This
2: is the this is this, the, is, his this is the pouty, color colorful, is generous Australian tennis That's player. That's correct. Is that
1: right? But right. I, his hard court and grass, I think Zverev could absolutely beat okay. anybody on grass. I think um, FAA Felix Ogier, Ali, Asim could beat anybody on grass. I think both okay. of them are wide open. You you give me you could take ten players, and I'll take the field this time. I think there's a oh, lot wow. of players that could win it.
2: Okay,
0: good fun, good fun.
1: Wow, did you just say ten players you take? In Tennis versus the field no no, no no what i'm saying is um it, you don't know if you take the top ten yeah, you ha- no probably top you're, you're, five. yeah top five top it's not five.
2: As, it's not as unlikely as golf, golf is often more like a ten a ten but usually person tennis person.
1: is
0: two versus yeah, right. the field it's just right. the most tight right um all
2: right, gentlemen. Let's wrap it there. We've got a we've got an interview ahead of us. Jay Jaffe of FanGraphs. We'll talk a little baseball with him. We'll go with a short Q three. I want to do a special thank you to Audie Weiner. You guys haven't known it because he's so professional, but he's coming to us from <laughs> Israel right now, where it is well after midnight, and we appreciate his being up for it. He's Audie's a quite a good traveler lately, but he's also an even better. Wharton Moneyball co-host and he's showing himself to be quite flexible. Thank you. Addy.
0: You're very welcome. Enjoy the rest of the show. All right.
2: We'll see you on the other side of the commercial. Company. Join us after the break.
0: You're listening to Wharton
2: Moneyball
1: on business radio.
2: Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to Q4. This week's Q4 for has become our interview segment for the last two and a half years since pandemic rolled on and this week we're delighted to welcome back to the show jay jaffe jay is a longtime friend of the show he's a senior writer over at fangraphs which we are forever referring to he previously wrote for both sports illustrated and baseball prospectus we can strongly recommend you follow him on twitter his twitter handle is at j underscore jaffe jaffe is j-a-f-f-e at Jay underscore Jaffe. Jay, good to see you. Welcome back to Warden Moneyball.
3: Hey, thanks. Good to be back.
2: Hey, man, I know the world's distracting in many ways. Not all of them favorable <laughs> these days, but that's one of the reasons we have sports. We um, we can focus on more redeeming features of uh, human experience. What in the world of baseball right now has your attention, Mr. Jaffe? You're such a great baseball follower.
3: Um, well, let's see. Today, I'm writing about Freddie Freeman and the Dodgers yesterday, I wrote about Jesse Winker and the brawl, the Mariners brawl. Uh, The day before that, I wrote about Bryce Harper's injury. Uh, Before that, I was on vacation for, for the better part of a week. Uh, Okay. Hold
2: on. You're good enough. You're good enough. I've got questions. I've got questions. (laughs) So I was away when, when Harper got hit and I haven't seen the details, but it sounds like he may be out for a while. What, What, what did you say about Harper's injury and what do we know about it? Well,
3: it looks like he's going to have surgery. He's going to be out a minimum of six weeks. That's actually uh, on the shorter side of of, of expectations there relative to, you know, Gene Segura, his teammate, uh, had surgery on his ring finger and is expected to be out 10 to 12 weeks. Uh, The Phillies, obviously, they fired their manager, Joe Girardi, earlier this month. Uh, They've since turned their season around at least somewhat, uh, uh, getting back above 500 and uh, at least – uh, closer to the Mets in the division race and closer to the wild card, uh, uh, that last wild card spot. Uh, obviously, though, this is a big blow to them. Um, you know, and this is already a poorly constructed roster. Uh, Harper was DHing because because of his, his uh, UCL tear um, that he suffered in April, and uh, that forced the team to uh, – uh, put both Nick Castellanos and Kyle Schwarber in the outfield at the same time, which wasn't really the plan. Those are those right. are two born DHs at this point, right? Right, um, right. And so to have both of those guys running around out there has not been good. They have one of the worst defenses in the league. That's put a lot of uh, extra stress on the pitching staff, which, to be fair, has at least in the starting rotations, one of the best in the game. Um, uh, and which is so, so Jay? Jay,
2: hold, give me hold on one second. For for me, I, I'll say for the layperson, and I'm going to put myself squarely in that box for baseball. When you when you have an outfield of of short when Schwart was playing in the outfield instead of DHing, what is the material impact uh, on your defense? Like, how much does, do you think? How much do we think that actually costs them? Especially if you have another outfielder out there that can't help compensate.
3: Well, let's see. I think I think the two of them combined and let's caution to say the defensive metrics, uh, you know, even on a partial season, we're talking about something like 40 percent of the season right now uh, are not uh, or they tend to be noisy. But we're probably talking about something on the order of the outfield costing them about 10 runs uh, so far this year, maybe maybe a little bit more than that. You know, win, win and a half. Uh, And the Phillies defense as a whole. Uh, has been somewhere close to 25 to 30 runs below average uh, based on defensive okay. runs saved and, and the stat cast uh, uh, fielding runs uh, uh, saved uh, metrics. Um, that's that's a lot. That's that, 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 that's a lot. It's tough to overcome. And, and, you know, the punted defense all around the infield as well. Uh, Reese Hoskins, uh, Gene Segura is a, a solid defender, but he's out 10 to 12 weeks. Uh, Reese Hoskins, Didi Gregorius, and Alex Bohm uh, are all subpar defenders. Bohm, especially. Um, you know, there's just no way to 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 make that to make that up. I mean, the only real good fielder they have is is JT Realmuto, who's having a rough year with the bat. So um, you know, it's t- It's tough to see how this team is going to contend.
2: And then give us a, let's use Bryce Harper as an example of the impact of a single player. How well do we understand what that will do to their, um, the, the, the wins we should expect over these next six weeks?
3: Yeah, I, you know, it's, doing the math, it's, it's not a huge impact in, you know, on paper, but you're talking about a guy who had the second best uh, WRC plus uh, uh, in the league or second best OPS plus in the league. And the Phillies don't have anybody who's even an average hitter, uh, a league average hitter lying around. I mean, Matt Veerling, I think, you know, has, has had, uh, uh, has been hot in June, but you're talking about, you know, relying on a 40 to 50, you know, plate appearance sample to call him above average. And right. I, there's right. his larger track record doesn't suggest he can do that. Uh, but he's probably going to get the bulk of the reps in right field, uh, uh for the next few weeks. And, uh, uh, so you're you know you're probably talking, you know on paper it's it still only comes out to a few runs you know maybe I think I, I think it would be uh, half a win is probably about as you know a wide a gap as you're, if you're just comparing the production but you know there are probably some peripheral down the lineup there's guys who you know psychologically could be pressing yeah, because they right. feel like they need to make up for Harper. You know, right. these, these are human beings. These are human are th- beings. And I don't want to, I don't want to <laughs> wrap the narrative onto, you know, on, on onto something, but you know, we all know what human nature, you know, human nature is you're. you know, if you're one of your big guys is out, everybody else wants, you know, it th- feels like they gotta be
2: the guy to step up. It's like, that's the way we feel when Eric misses the show, Jay, we all like, yeah. double <laughs> up on our prep. We feel pressure. We're tight. Um, Jay, um, are there any benefits, you know, in a lot of other sports, if a star goes down we say, well, you know, we'll come back later in the season we we'll be better rested, or maybe he's got another Nick somewhere that's going to get a chance to improve. Are there any upsides to Bryce's being?
3: If you're looking for a silver lining, it's that, you know, he had a PRP injection for the UCL tear in, uh, in May. Uh, maybe there's been enough time by the time he gets back that he's able to throw again uh, and play the field. Harper is not an above-average fielder, um, but you know he's probably a better fielder than Schwarber or Castellanos. So yeah, maybe you get get a little bit of that back if he's able to play the field. I think you're probably looking at that not happening until September, though, and so you're talking about a pretty small uh, advantage there. Okay.
1: Okay. Jed, wondering what about the possibility of changing strategy? Let me give you a few. So maybe what you do is you uh, run. You try to steal more bases. Maybe what you try to do is you uh, do hit and run more. Maybe you go to a four-man rotation because maybe the fifth pitcher really sucks. So I'm just wondering: are there strategies that one could take that might help improve the win percentage? You no, know, they might help lose them too. They might be higher mean but yeah, higher variance. This is not a
3: team that's built to steal bases. I mean, the the uh, J T Real Mudo, the catcher leads the team with five steals. Uh, I don't think you're going to get a lot of uh, uh, benefit by, by uh, uh, taking that tack. I, you know, I think the, the, you know, starter rotation wise, I mean, actually I think this is one of the better uh, one through five rotations in the league. I think if anything, you're probably worried about burning them out uh, and placing more stress on a bullpen that, you know, had been the bane of Girardi's existence before he was fired. Um you know, I think that uh, uh, what you know, what would help would be if they could trade for, you know, a, a, an upgrade. But right now, you know, teams are jockeying for a position. They're going to wait, you know, as long as they can to trade the guys that they're uh, going to trade you know, to try to jack up the prices. And, and the Phillies, because their farm system has been strip mined for prospects in the last few years, don't really have uh, great options, you know, to compete uh, with other teams, if you know, if if a, a uh, let's say the Yankees, if they and the Yankees were going after the same player, the Yankees are going to get that if they're, yeah. you know, because just because of the depth of their system, they can lose some of those guys, uh you know, without a sweat. Whereas the Phillies, they they don't even have many above-average prospects that that, that are going to entice other teams. It's all lottery tickets.
2: Man, Jay, you are painting a bleak picture of this franchise, not just the season or this. St- current state but like where we're going it's, it's really a shame to hear that about well you know
3: it's already. it's look this is a team that's that's above the the competitive balance tax threshold they really went all in uh this is the modus operandi of dave dombrowski teams you know he's had success he's built uh pennant winning teams in the past he's you know he's uh uh but he is a guy who is in a very much in a win now mode mm-hmm. um and somebody else is going to have to clean that up later on Um, you know, and if it doesn't work, you're, you know, you're, there's not a, there's not a lot of
2: uh, room for, you know, for, uh, for falling back. Listen, let's take advantage of your being here and talk about the Dodgers. We, we, this show is run by Yankees fans. I have to put up with this Yankee talk all the time, American (laughs) East all the time. We, we stray a little bit to talk about Philadelphia, but you know, we just had Yankees Astros. Of course we're interested in that, but let's go talk Dodgers and actually, maybe you can feel us kind of what's going on with the giants as well. After such a wonderful season last year. What are we seeing from them this year? What's going on over in that part of the world?
3: Well, you know, the Dodgers have, have, have been, uh, the strongest team in, you know, in the league for a few years, you know, given, you know, at least in terms of regular season, um, uh, they are again, looking, you know, to, to be that, but they've had some pitching injuries. They lost Walker Bueller for a good chunk of the season here before that they lost Clayton Kershaw. Um, you know, they've, they keep coming up with, with, uh, um, you know, with, with quality pitching, you know, Tyler Anderson, a journeyman has turned into uh, a st- a staff stalwart. Tony Gonsolin is, uh, seems to have the restrictor uh, off of him finally and is pitching, you know, uh, he's an ERA leader, uh, uh, on and off here when it, when he's, uh, above the inning threshold to qualify. Um, the offense has had its ups and downs. Mookie Betts has hit like an MVP at, at times. And, uh, uh, like a guy who belongs on the side of the milk carton at times, and right now, unfortunately, he's on the injured list uh, uh, with a cracked rib after after a uh, uh, collision. Uh, and the offense has kind of had some outages here in June.
2: Okay. Well, this is not the this is not the happiest picture. You mentioned Kershaw. I haven't heard an update on him for a while. He's he's coming back at some point, is he not?
3: Oh, he's back. He's back, and he's pitching well. You know, he is. He's got a, a two ERA and a 2.44 fifth. Um, he's pitched very well when he's been available, but you know, he missed six starts and that was uh, um, that left the Dodgers scrambling with uh, uh, minor league call-ups and openers. And uh, um, you know, there's a big step down there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. Well, what about the giants? There were darlings for us last year. We, we liked the the GM out there. We liked the innovation with the coaches. They were so much fun to watch. Of course they got knocked out early, but it was still a great season. Was that just outperformance are they just regressing to the mean this year or do you have any other takeoff
3: yeah there's there I think I see a lot of regression there I mean they've got some some uh, uh some good pitching Carlos Rodon has been a great addition uh Logan Webb is still uh one of the one of the best pitchers in the league but uh Alex Wood has kind of fallen off Alex Cobb has not really panned out uh so well um the retire the abrupt retirement of Joey I mean of, of uh, sorry of Buster Posey uh, mm-hmm. has been a bit of a setback for them because the, uh, the heir apparent Joey Bart has struggled to the point that he got demoted to the minors. Um, you know, they, their offense is still, is still pretty strong, even though they've had some injuries here and there. Brandon Belt, Evan Longoria, now Brandon Crawford. Um, you know, this is a team that I think we still expect more from this year, but uh, they haven't really hit their stride. Instead, it's been the Padres uh, who have uh, given the Dodgers the, the closest chase.
2: It's funny, I, we have some friends out here with twin boys about 10 years old, and they were giving me their favorite teams, and both, both of them had Padres in top three, which is not – those aren't the Padres I grew up with. But they're doing something yeah. different when 10-year-olds in Central Texas are saying, this is my favorite team.
3: Yeah, the Padres are a fun team. I mean, even without uh, Fernando Tatis Jr., they've gotten uh, an MVP-caliber performance from Manny Machado, uh, some nice seasons from contributors like Jake Cronenworth and Jerks and Profar, uh, Jorge Alfaro, uh, Eric Hosmer has returned to the land of the living, although he's kind of cooled off uh, since of, after a very hot start. Um, and the starting pitching is is again some of the best in the league. Um, you've got a, a you know a healthy and effective Yu Darvish, Joe Musgrove, uh, Mackenzie Gore, the long-awaited pitching prospect has been uh, uh, just what they had hoped for, and uh, so uh, it's an effective bunch. And and uh, you know I th- I think they're they're going to be a playoff team.
2: Okay, let's talk about the state of the, the 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 sport in general, and especially sports analytics. I mean, baseball has always been kind of the cutting edge for sports analytics. Where do you see it now? What are the what's the frontier in baseball, and what contribution is analytics making in baseball right
3: now? Well, you know, I think just about every team is using analytics in its day-to-day decision making. Some more effectively than others. Uh, you see it when you're t- looking at you know teams like the Dodgers and the Yankees, and it's like Wow, guys come to these teams and they're suddenly, you know, these journeymen are suddenly better. Why is that happening? Well, it's because probably uh, they've got more effective uh, union between their analytics and their coaching departments, and they can t- they can communicate. Uh, this is what you, this is what we see you doing best. This is what we think can make you more effective. Let's try that and see if it works. And we're seeing we're seeing that with the Tyler Andersons of the world. Uh, hey, isn't that and-
2: remarkable that 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 used to be what you just characterized? That used to be a coach's job, and or you know maybe a scout a little bit, but then he'd get them into the team, and then a coach would watch them swing or watch them pitch and have those kinds of conversations. And now. Now the best teams have teams of analysts who are coming up with that kind of, those kinds of recommendations. It's just a completely well, different source.
3: It, it is going it through is, the coach. It is. It's still, it still has to go through the coach and it still has to go, come, you know, to, to be translated into the language of the player who may yes. not necessarily have gone through, you know, his, his training, uh, you know, using using those terms. So there's still, I think, you know, we, I think what we've saw over the past two decades was a disconnect between, uh, the analytics side and the coaching side, uh, and the translation to the player. And now what we're seeing, you know, the, you know, new market, uh, new market inefficiency or whatever, you know, is that some teams are very much better than others in, in conveying that language. I think the giants were a great example of that last year as well. Um, you know, and, and the, 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 the choices and the methodologies differ, uh, you know, for what they're doing. But everything from like pitch shapes and swing angles, uh, defensive positioning, it, it just across the board, it's, it's having an impact. Now, mm-hmm. what's harder for somebody like me is if you're on the outside of this, uh, the tools that, that, that the teams have, the gap between what the teams have and what the public has is widening. Right, um, and that's making it more different. You know, I mean, look, I've got. Hey, what's more an tools example? Than ever to do my job,
2: give us an example of something that teams have that we don't have. Like, what, what would you most, if you could just write a story or understand a player better, and you don't have access to it? What are you thinking about? Like, what I, I
3: think I spend I spend a lot of time grinding through uh, Baseball Savant, the the the, the Statcast site, um, with a very you know uh, feature rich but clunky interface. Um, whereas, you know, and it could take me all day to do a detailed analysis to search for like the needle in the haystack for, you know, for what's, what's changed, you know, what, what, like where, where the point of inflection is, um,
2: give us an example of a needle in one of the haystacks you were
3: searching. Well, you know, you're looking for like, okay, you know, what is this guy doing differently than last year? Why is he not as effective? It might be, you know, that he's less effective against, you know pitches on the inner third of the plate it might be that he's less less effective on pitches in the upper third of the zone Um, I have to look at each one of those to see that uh, and I have to also kind of conceptualize whether I've got a big enough sample size to really you know call that to call that uh, you know a valid uh, you know a valid change whereas I think the you know the the teams of I think they probably modeled that stuff, and they can give you a better idea, and they can all do that all that at, at a click of a button mm-hmm. uh, to tell you to tell you that stuff because they're you know they know that they're going to have to look for that stuff. They've also got um, you know where we've got we're looking at uh, I say launch angles and and exit velocities. What we don't have uh, out of the box is spray angle. We don't have you know we've got pull oppo um, you know and 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 up the middle, uh, but we don't have. Um, you know a a precise reading of of where you know between the foul lines uh the hits are going and Mm -hmm. so we get we have we have less information uh to you know to 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 calibrate that with our um you know the way we the way we analyze like why is you know, if if this guy's exit velocity and launch angle are, and, and barrel rate, hard hit rate are, are are similar to last year's, why are his results so different? Even why is you know his expected results different? It's still there's there's still a level of detail that the public doesn't get.
2: Um, you're talking about harder. you're talking about trying to understand players and uh, and improve players. It, just to, to wrap up here. What do you think is hardest about being an executive in front office of a baseball team? What's the hardest part of their job? What differentiates those that are best from the
3: I think it's, it's integrate, it's integrating all those forms of information and keeping everybody on the same page. I think that's, you know, I I think that aspect of, of, of the job, you know, has gotten harder because there are more, you know, there are more inputs. um, There is that tension, uh, there's still attention, I think in terms, you know, to the extent that the front office has become, uh, you know, more identifiable to the fans. There's more public pressure, you know, for the, um, Andrew Friedman or Farhan Zaidi or Brian Cashman to build a winner, uh, and not necessarily understanding the method to the madness. Um, you know, if you're still thinking in terms of wins, losses, RBIs, um, You know, batting average. You're behind. uh, You know, you're behind the times because that's not at all what the front offices are looking at. Uh, And yet, you've got to weather the the the, you know the public opinion uh, about that stuff and the impact of of the public perception of how the team is doing. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and and you've got to keep uh, uh, you've got to keep all these various departments of of your of your organization. You know, functioning and, and 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 in some kind of
2: harmony. And I, 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 that's a huge job. <laughs> exactly. And getting huger. <laughs> and getting huger. Right. Listen, yeah. last, 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 I said that was last. Here's the last. Coming up on the midway point of the season, give us one storyline for the second half of the season. What do you, what's something you think we should be paying attention to when we hit that
1: point? The, Yanke- well, it was, is know, the Yankees breaking the all time record for wins of 116.
3: <laughs> I did, I did just write about the Yankees. That was the last thing I wrote before vacation. So I'll steer away from that. Um, you know, I think still to me the big story is the effect of the new baseball. Um or baseballs uh themselves. I mean, we saw, you know, a tremendous offensive downturn at the beginning of the year. Uh we've seen more hitter more pitchers than ever uh chasing no hitters uh into the middle of the game in the middle of the innings uh depressed uh batting averages uh and other hitting stats uh measurably um uh, less potent, uh, outcomes on stat cast, um, you know, and, and a lack of confidence that, uh, uh, all this is on the up and up because (laughs) baseball has, has shown that, you know, they've, even though they've got control of the manufacturing process, uh, there may be multiple versions of the ball, uh, that are being used. And, you know, with the, you know, even with the humidifiers and all the, in all the parks now, um, we don't really, you don't really know what you're getting out of that box. If suddenly you're going to get, uh, uh, the new dead ball era or mm-hmm. uh, the home run, the home run balls of, of 2019. It's just, it mm-hmm. seems on a day-to-day basis, it seems unpredictable. And, and you know, the, pl- the players will tell you that the balls, are, the balls are inconsistent. So I think that's wow. still a huge story. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, obviously it affects our ability to analyze it. We can only go so far um, because we've got mm-hmm. numbers, but we don't necessarily have, uh, you know, smoking guns, uh, um, you know, when it comes to all that. Interesting.
2: All right. Well, listen. Good fun talking to you. Thanks for making the time. Love the work you're doing, Jay. Wish you the best. With thanks him. so much. Absolutely, right. Jay. Great talking, Jay great talking to you, Jay Jaffe from Fangraphs. Going to let him go and spend a little bit more time here talking baseball with Eric before we wrap up the whole show. But you can follow Jay on Twitter. Great follow at Jay underscore Jaffe at Jay underscore Jaffe or find his work at Fangraphs. Okay, Eric. There's a. 20 minutes with one of the great baseball observers in the world. Curious to get your thoughts on anything that he said.
1: Well, when I was talking about, um, when, when Jay was talking about uh, the job of the, I'll call it the analyst to uh, integrate different information, I was thinking, wow, that, I think that's a success criterion for everybody in, in large managerial positions today. But I was also thinking back to the uh, topic we talked about earlier in the show about Bayesian estimation and information. I think one of the hardest challenges is you get information from lots of different sources, but how do you know how much weight to put on each information source? And that was something that um, I was thinking about quite a bit while Jay was speaking.
2: Well, I think this is one of the, as you say, great challenges in running organizations in general. We see it played out in sports because we get to observe it more directly. But, you know, the thing is, it's not just the challenge of optimal integration. We're rarely objective about the sources of these information. Usually that decision maker has a bias towards either the, right. you know, for example, the, the the canonical battle is the traditional scouts versus the analytics department and and, you, and it's a political game. It's not just this, okay, what's the optimal weight between these two things? It is that plus all the tension that tends to rise unless you've got an organizational culture that allows these things to come together. So I, I absolutely 100%, I, I, well, I wouldn't have thought of it ahead of time necessarily, but it's interesting to me to hear Jaffe say that's the hardest thing about running one of these clubs is integrating all these different sources of information. You say from a Bayesian perspective, that's hard. Absolutely true. Well, there's also the political perspective and there's not a lot of organizations that have figured out how to do this very well.
1: I also think that you know one of the classic things I remember learning as a you know a college student was how much what's the value of information. So I think another thing a lot of teams are struggling with today is how much to invest in different data sources. Like is it worth having micro level data on player positioning, et cetera. So I think one of the things a lot of teams, I'm sure, are struggling Look, Everybody can buy the same data today. Everyone can get people that know data science today. Now the question is, which of those do you invest in? How do you integrate those together? Because I don't believe, like, I have better data than you. No, I don't believe that's a competitive advantage. I have better data scientists than you. Maybe I have data scientists that are better at taking methods and helping translate them into actionable insights. Yes, that I do believe. But I mean, that it's hard to get a competitive advantage except to hire people that are kind of good at translating data into insights. That's the competitive advantage for me.
2: It's, well, it's, um, I got two comments on that. One, these organizations are not equal in their resources. And so, you know, the Yankees and Dodgers, don't have to pick and choose so much what they're investing in they just go invest in all of it and they'll they you know where we've been with sports analytics lately is we don't know what technology is going to be best we don't know what we're going to learn by having you know motion tracking for all football players but we know that (laughs) we're gonna be doing things differently five years from now than we are now so we better get on that train and there are some organizations that are willing to just make that bet because they can afford to and they have enough faith in technology. Other organizations are like, you're talking about five years from now, and I don't have that many resources anyway. How am I going to I, justify that?
1: Look, I mean, I, here's my view. The most, let's say the average payroll, even the minimum payroll in MLB is probably, let's say take MLB to start with, probably 50 million. The uh, highest payroll, obviously, in the 200 million range. You know, for the extra, let's call it million dollars, you could uh, you could dedicate to your analytics team. You could get massive ROI on the expenditure on the primary thing. So to me, I understand that, but I'm saying I don't view it. Look, it's not my money, but I don't view it like let's take the maybe the Rays, the Orioles, who are low spending teams. It's not like if they spend an extra million on analytics, it's not like they have to take a million away from salaries. They don't have to do that. They could just spend more, hoping that. It'll improve the product on the field, which will then improve the TV money, the gate, all of those mm-hmm. things. So you can mm-hmm. view it as an investment in a fundamental asset which hopes improve the ROI of your primary expenditure. That's the way I view it.
2: I, I think that's right, but I think in 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 real world, they tend to go together. The teams that are willing to spend more on payroll or willing to spend more on their analytics department sure. so un- unfortunately they ought to be compensatory because and i would do
1: the opposite right so I to- i've told this story many times that one of the great lines i've ever heard is when we had gary loveman speak here at analytics at wharton who was the for- former economist at harvard but then ceo of caesars entertainment he was talking about They were asked a question was asked from the audience how do you compete with these new billion dollar casinos you have a 200 million dollar old caesar's palace they've got the aria and all this other stuff and he goes i compete on data and analytics which is for every dollar they put into giving somebody you know uh an upgraded room i spend a dollar figuring out who to give the upgraded room to and i figure out so to me i like your thoughts to me i would spend more of a proportion if i were a lower budget team because you have to get higher ROI out of your assets.
2: Well, of course, this is Billy Bean and the A's. This is the Guardians. Right. This, is, this, this is how they've maintained competitiveness. I mean, how, the, how in the world have the Indians found themselves in the playoffs? Guardians. I'm sorry. Guardians found themselves in the playoffs with such high frequency lately.
1: Well, um, now, of course, that our Wharton alum uh, and, and, you know, uh, David Blitzer has now become the owner yeah, of the right. Guardians. Um, we may have a big difference now that, you know, he obviously this is just to be clear. This is uh, someone is that it, owns, as you know, the Sixers, the Devils, Crystal Palace, now soon the Guardians and or at least a large part of it. And so um, is it a
2: large part? Is it, or is it a small part with the with the right to get more over time? I
1: don't remember. I, I don't thought he now percentage. already had that. I think he's now the large part. I think the large part is now. And
2: do you think he's going to start spending money? The the Guardians are going to become a more average or big market, big money team?
1: Uh, I'm meeting with him tomorrow and I'm going to ask him. (laughs) But either way, I, I, I believe I believe he'll do what he's done in his career as head of tactical ops at Blackstone, which is. He's going to invest in things that have high ROI. He understands mm-hmm. that completely. And he's uh, I know factually he's all in on data science. So I'm expecting good things from the guardians on the data science. front. You
2: know, I, I, well, I, I love the team. I, 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 we know those guys we've worked with the and off for a few yep. years now and deepest respect. It's kind of exciting to think about a team that has such good um, culture, decision-making processes. they, They kind of go about things the right way and now load them up with a little bit of resources, some income. That's a nice way to go. I can imagine it doesn't work so much the other way. You start out with well-resourced team, no good processes, no good analytics. It's hard to bring the analytics on once you've set that bad culture. But the guardians are kind of the perfect alternative to that. The guardians are, look – we already know how to do things. We just don't have enough money to spend. We're not going to all of a sudden throw all that good process and wisdom out the window just because we have some resources. Now we can just apply the wisdom with greater impact because we got more money. I hope that's the way it goes down. And I suspect. And of course it we're
1: all waiting to see as if more money uh, spent leads to even greater success for a team that's already had great success with limited resources. That'll yeah, be the interesting
2: that's question. That's right. That's right. That's right. It's super interesting. Well, it's I'm glad. I mean, it's fun to have Blitzer involved with that. I'd be curious to hear how your conversation with him goes tomorrow, but fun to hear from Jaffe quick tour of a few organizations around baseball and getting Jaffe's thoughts. He's obviously an interesting observer of the sport and a good, a good, uh, a good person for us to chat with on occasion, Eric, that has been another Q4 and another show, another two hours of sports analytics on behalf of the whole team. This is Caden and Eric here wrapping up the show, but Audie was with us earlier Shane Jensen's out today, but he'll be back. Matty Dats running the thing as usual, and the associate boss man running things, Dion Simkin. For all of us, appreciate y'all listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.